Jeremiah 29, verses 1 through 11 is what I'll read this morning. Follow along in your own Bibles, or if you don't have a Bible, uh, you can feel free to follow along on the screen above me. Hear God's word. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gamaria, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. If, you've been, if you haven't been paying attention, pay attention now. <laughs> it said, and here is verse 4, Thus says, this is the actual letter, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie for that that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed, For Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. This ends the reading of God's holy inerrance and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God, may it stand forever. All right, reaching our city and talking about this, um, we, I want to begin by just simply acknowledging, um, I don't know if unique is the right word, but we are in a different season for the church in America, at least compared to necessarily the culture and the type of cities that your parents probably grew up in. Listen, hist- historians can debate, and I, I don't know, talk to Dan Williams uh, about this, but um, you can talk to Sandy as well, although you're more of a European uh, person. Um, but whether America has ever been a Christian country or not, that's up for debate. What is not, I don't think, up for much debate is that the mores and the ethics that, gen- that traditional religions, and in particular Christianity, has espoused, I think generally has at least been lauded as a good thing in society. Up to this point. Now, that doesn't mean that those laws were, you know, kept by American society. In fact, for large parts of our American history, we, we violated them left and right and didn't seem to care. That's why we had these things called the awakenings. But it appears now that not only are we definitely not as a Christian nation, if we ever were, we are in what many people, sociologists, would call a post-Christian nation. And when it comes to our ethics and mores and the quote-unquote Christian way of life, not, only, not anymore is it lauded as a good thing, but in many ways it's looked as a morally depraved way to live. It's, a, it's morally anathema. But in this, we actually come to perhaps connect to much of the church's history, at least as we find it in the scriptures. That for much of the church's history, the understanding that we are not home, that we are exiles in a foreign land, has been very easy to understand. That you are vastly different than the world around you. And as exiles, for many of you, you may begin to feel like this country that I'm living in I feel like an exile in my own country. It seems like the place in which I grew up, I no longer recognize. 
Well, this is the experience of the Israelites in Jeremiah 29. In fact, it's the experience of many Israelites in the back half of your Old Testament. As they were, many, many of them, where they were good, faithful uh, worshipers of Yahweh, found that Israel was no longer a place in which Yahweh was faithfully served. Or they found themselves literally exiled, taken out of their homeland, and taken to various places around the world at that time in enslavements. And this is what we find this morning. As we find Israelites, and this is what this is addressed in Jeremiah 29, a people who are very clearly living in exile. And so the question for us is, as a people who culturally may more and more begin to feel and experience the fact that this is not our home, that we feel as if we are in a place that is foreign to us in its ethics and its desires and the way it approaches life, the question is, how in the world should we approach living in this culture, but more specifically, even in Carrollton, in our city? That even though, while we would say, well, Carrollton's still in the Bible Belt, there are significant shifts that have happened in the South. It's called the New South, in which there are many shifts going on in, within the Southeast. What was known as the Bible Belt is very much beginning to experience, with much of America experienced 15 and 20 years ago, a post-Christendom, or what some people in the Christian church have called the de-churched. What we'd say is people who got just enough of Jesus, to be inoculated. They got a little bit of moral stuff, but they didn't get the true gospel. Was it? I don't think it was Dorothy Day. Who was it describes the South? Maybe it was Dorothy Sayers who described the South as the Christ-haunted place. It is haunted, which it's like the ghost of the church is here, but the church really isn't. How do we approach our city? In the midst of this. So I'm going to ask that question this morning. I'm going to give you two, two questions to guide our time with some points underneath them to answer this morning as we talk and discuss about what it looks like to reach our city. And the first question is this, how ought we approach our city? How ought we approach our city? And I think very clearly it says in verse 7 of Jeremiah 29 that we are to have a perspective and a view that we seek the welfare of our city. And that's where we're going to go. But first I want to deal with some of the, some of the baggage that we bring into this, this discussion. Because many of us, have, we have faulty views of how we approach our city. And I would say there's two areas, and they're different sides of the, you know, the pendulum. Two ways in which Christians have often approached city and the culture around them, and that is this, that we, have, we assimilate to the city or we withdraw from the city. We look at the first one together. First, we assimilate to the city. In other words, what I mean by this is there is a temptation that we as Christians, because we long to be liked, and that we, that we lose our saltiness and we begin to assimilate so much to the culture around us and even, yes, to the morals of our city here in Carrollton, that we begin to look too much like the city. We lose our cultural distinctiveness. Let me ask you this. If you are a carbon copy of the most average member of Carrollton, what would your life look like? What were the things that you would assume, the presuppositions of your life? How would you think? What would be the great desires of your life? And would it be actually desires that Jesus has? But see, this is what Jeremiah is actually facing of sorts. Is you may notice here that in any ways, there's a pendulum that the various Jewish people are experiencing as they are taught, brought into exile in Babylon. Is he calls them and he says, listen, I want you to marry and to have children and to give your children in marriage. But you notice what it doesn't say is give your children in marriage to the Babylonians. There is a distinctiveness that they are still to keep. They are Israelites. They are Yahweh worshipers. And so there is a certain element that they are not going to lose their Jewishness and their Israeliteness. There will still be Yahweh worshipers. But if you notice what happens in the, the way in which Nebuchadnezzar, and it's very, very bright the way the Babylonians tended to try to bring people into submission to their, to their, um, to their rule and authority, is what they would do, is, and this is what happened in Jeremiah, is if you notice who this letter is addressed to, is the Babylonians would take the cultural movers and shakers from the society, and they'd pull them out of the cities and places where they're from, and they would bring them to Babylon. Now, why would they do that? Well, and you see here what they would do. They brought the priests and the prophets, the metal workers, the craftsmen, the important people of Israelite society. They brought them out, and they left the poor and the impoverished. 
back in Israel, and they brought them to Babylon, and they gave them good jobs, and they welcomed them into their place. Why would they do that? Well, it's the frog and the kettle approach to changing them. Bring them here, make them comfortable, make them rich, assimilate them to our society, and they lose their Jewishness. They lose their distinctiveness. And this has actually been one of the significant struggles and challenges throughout Christian history where Christians appear to have the power and it becomes a mix in which we don't know what is the culture around us and what is Christian. And when that happens, often and very quickly, Christians lose their saltiness. We lose our distinctiveness and we begin to look exactly like the world around us. There's nothing different about us. The Babylonians, so they took people like Daniel, didn't they? And they gave them a new name. They gave them new food and new ways of dressing. And they gave them prominent places within the kingdom. And this is what the world does for us. You think that the devil is very bright. He knows. Listen, if, we, if I'm too direct, they, they'll see that. But let's see if I can just woo them into the ways of the world. It is so easy to get up, caught up as Christians is to look exactly like the people around you, to have the, the desires, the worldview, the perspectives, the vision for the world that everybody else around you has for the world. And it can be so gradual. You know, in the last, I don't know, couple decades, maybe it started with the secret movement, but there's, there's this word that has been, the way this plays out in the church is people say, the church has got to be relevant. We've got to be relevant. In fact, one of the, the most highly read uh, magazines now for Christians is Relevant Magazine. Now, I am all for being relevant. In fact, I had it as one of my points in a sermon just a couple months ago saying that when we complain and proclaim and speak the gospel, that it should be relevant to our culture. But that is proactive and that is aggressive. That in order to engage with people and to share with them about Jesus, you have to understand them. But what often what Christians mean is we got to look like them, we've got to talk like them, we've got to dress like them. But more than that, that's just the window dressing. What they say is that we, we too much we embrace the worldview of those around us. Oh, sin. Yeah. This sin is relative. I don't know about that issue. Let's try to see if we can gray that up a little bit, even though the Bible speaks about it fairly clearly. When has the Bible ever called us to be relevant? I don't know why we have this obsession with being cool as a church. And in fact, oddly enough, most studies are showing that postmodern folks like our 20-somethings here, that millennials are returning to churches that don't care what you think. That they see through the garbage. They see through all the window dressing and trying to be cool and hip. Because everybody's been trying to do that. It's being turned on its table. The temptation for us is to assimilate to the world around us, to lose our saltiness, as it says in Matthew 5. <clears throat> the other temptation, though, is to withdraw from this. Let me, actually, let me say this about assimilation. And I want to be, be careful here, but um, some of you may come to King's Chapel because, my goodness, we're not very, we don't say the same things as maybe the church you grew up in. Those churches with their teetotalers. And you come here to this church, this Presbyterian church, where we, we revel in the fact that our greatest theologians drank scotch and smoked cigars while they did their theology. And listen, that's all well and good to actually do biblical exegesis and say, I, we're not going to hold people to extra biblical laws. But listen, some of you are so, the, the desire and the attractiveness to those things is because you want to party just like the rest of the world. And frankly, you're playing the fool. God has not given us freedom, freedom from man-made laws in order for us to be fools with it. Are you being wise? Are you being loving to your neighbor in the way in which you take advantage of your freedom in Jesus Christ? God has given you freedom in order to be free from sin and in order to set other people free, not so you can party your way to heaven. We aren't there yet. So get serious about the business of the kingdom. Yes, there are times where we celebrate together, and that's wonderful. But listen, brothers and sisters, we've got to be serious about holiness, and we should be serious about the battle and the war that we are in. That's a slam against being overly assimilated. All right, withdrawing from the city. 
withdrawing from the city. Here's the Jeremiah context. They, so the exiles have been brought out of Israel. They've been brought into the Babylonian area. And what happens is they, they come in and they're saying, of course, I mean, they're an exiled people. And they're going, this is awful. This is terrible. How are we going to raise our children in this terrible, disgusting, depraved city? And so what do they decide to do? For many of them, what we see in chapters 26, 27, 28 of Jeremiah is the people of the exiles are saying, no, we're going to do, we're going to, we're going to settle just outside Babylon. We're not going to get involved in the Babylonian activities. We're going to keep a distance between us and the city. And in fact, not only do the people say that, but there's various prophets, prophets who come to share with them what they want to hear. The prophets who would come and say, peace, peace, where there is no peace. And the prophets who come to them and say, one particular name, Hananiah, we see in chapter 28, who is saying, listen, it's okay. We're only going to be here for like two years. Don't plant roots. Don't get to know people. It's okay. We're going to be out of here. It's all good. And Jeremiah shows up in Jeremiah chapter 29 says, liar. <laughs> liar. Liar. That is not what God has said. The temptation of what Hananiah was saying and what the temptation for many of us is to withdraw from the city, to withdraw from the culture at large. Now, understand this. You know, this doesn't mean you don't have to live in the woods on the back 40 to be withdrawn. You can live smack dab in the middle of the city and care nothing about the city. So let's not, let's not care so much about the window dressing. Because there are people who live, right, they're called yuppies, who live in the middle of the city and yet all they do is take advantage of the blessings of the city, and they don't reach the city at all. Do you even use the word yuppies anymore? Young urban professionals? I don't know. But some churches, this is the very opposite of what they do. Instead of assimilating and trying to be overly relevant, instead, what do they do? They withdraw, and they, tr- they create tribalistic lines in which all, it's all about pointing out to the culture and say, that's bad, bad, bad culture, bad city. And they, they, they push themselves away, and they have no... Nothing to do with the city. Now, here's what I want you to see with both of these responses, whether it's assimilation or withdrawal. Withdrawal says, I hate the city. Assimilation says, the city is great if it gives me stuff. Both approaches, I want you to see, are lazy and selfish. They're lazy and they're selfish. I think in large part they're lazy because it's Christians who take one of these kind of far-end spectrum approaches, assimilation or withdrawal, are simply being lazy because they're not being faithful to the call of the Scriptures, which is going to require you to be wise, which is going to require you to actually engage with people. It's going to require you not to simply just push yourself away and just say, these are the clear-cut lines. That's not how life works. It's just not that easy. Listen, it requires... So many people, I mean, go talk to some of the people in, 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 great, in academia. And the, the, this great struggle that they have, they are having to labor hard. They're having to be gentle as dove and wise as serpents. And for many of us, we don't want to do that. It's just easier to say, all bad and this is good over here. But that's lazy. But also we take a selfish approach because it's all about us. Assimilators, the assimilators to Carrollton here is... Are here for their enjoyment. The value of the city is found in its ability to give them a good time. So, if you got a good recreational program, awesome. Or if we have the right bars or the right restaurants or the right stores, then it's about that's great. Look how great Carrollton is for me. Withdrawers, the same way, they're selfish. They take a utilitarian approach to the city, which is simply this the city serves, I'm gonna go live over there, and the city is here to give me my groceries and to kind of give me my job. And that's it. And I want nothing else to do with it. Not here to actually care for the city. Neither approach views the city of Carrollton as a mission field. Neither approach views the city of Carrollton as a place to serve and to approve and to bring the kingdom of God to bear. Understand this, and this is, this is a struggle that I have, and I think I want you to feel the weight of the tension that we should feel as Christians. My wife and I have been in that place for the last couple of years. Some of you may know about two years ago, all I talked about was like slamming homeschoolers. You remember that period of, my, of our life as a church? I don't, know, I don't know what was going on there, but you kept inviting your friends. And like we grew primarily on homeschoolers who came and like, like it was like masochistic. Like, yay, come beat up on us a little bit more. Yay. Well, what was going on is I was reading and thinking about what is it? I was homeschooled and I was thinking about what, how are we going to school our children? And so these are the things that are on my mind and the things that are on my mind come out of my mouth on Sunday morning. And the challenge here is, and once you feel it's like, there is, if we as Christians, if we pull out of every institution, 
If we pull out of the public school system, if we pull out of every sports league, if we pull out of every dance studio, well, we've taken the salt out. And I, I don't, at the same time, I feel my tension here because I, my children are not to be the, the tip of the spear of the mission. That's unwise. At the same time, though, I'm preparing them for mission. And so there should be some angst in you that says, listen, if all Christians pull our kids out of the public school system, there's no one else. If all the homeschoolers in this city actually went back in the public school system and their families got involved, listen, I understand. It's for years we fought the good fight and we finally said we're done. But what if we were all still there? What might be different about our educational system? What if, if Christians and in the Darwinian debates of evolution and science 150 years ago, 100 years ago, instead of saying we are pulling out of academia, say we're sticking in and we're going to be the best scientists instead of pulling out, how things might have been different. I don't know what the answer is, so please understand me here. But if we, this, and by the way, this is a reformed perspective. Some of you think this being reformed means that we, our view on soteriology, that you're saved by faith through grace alone. But it, it expanded. Over the next couple hundred years, the reformers began to think about when you open it up, it, they, they, they rethought everything. And they said, how in the world can we engage the culture at large? You know why Christians believe we should be involved in the politics? Because of the Reformation. Because we think, that we, think that we think that the kingdom of God and a Christianity ought to affect every area of life. And by the way, that's why we should dance well. This, okay, this is another debate. So, <laughs> so this is a struggle that my wife and I are having now. So just welcome into the brain of, like, my, we, want our, we are putting our daughter in, in dance. And currently she's not at a Christian dance studio. And you apply this to your own particular issues. And the issue is, is, is there, they're saying, they want to push excellence in dance, and we want her to dance well because God is glorified by good arts. And yet the Christian approach is usually what they do is they say, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to start a dance studio, and we're all going to play Christian music, but we're, we don't really care whether they dance well. Well, what is the point of that? Why are we paying anybody to teach them to do anything? We could all, we could clear out the chairs in here and we can play, you know, 10,000 reasons and we can all frolic around. I don't understand the point of that. You understand the tension of what we're dealing with here. That we want to be a people who are salt and light in every area, in every sphere of society. And so we have to be willing to bear this tension, to think, to be a salt and light in the world. It's far more nuanced than simply assimilate or withdraw. All right, that's my rants for the morning. None of that stuff was in the notes. Biblical view of, of approaching the city. The biblical view. What is the biblical approach to how we view, how we view Carrollton? Verse 7, But seek the welfare of the city, where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. The biblical view of how we are to approach Carrollton. Carrollton, let's talk about Carrollton, is this that you are to seek the prosperity of Carrollton. Jeremiah says, I want you to move into the city. I don't want you to just move in. I want you to settle in the city. I want you to buy homes, build homes, raise your families. I want you to settle in there. I want you to make their life your life. I want you to care about some of the things that they care about. When the, when the trash system is not working well, I want you to care about that because they care about that. I want you to pray for them, and I want you to seek the shalom, the peace of the city. I understand, I want to just jump at a few things here exegetically for you. Just hitting just a few quotes from this section. Verse 4, he says this. Understand your perspective in regards to why God has you in Carrollton. It says this in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. Do you guys remember the story of Esther? What does Mordecai say to Esther? For such a time as this. Do you understand that God has put you in Carrollton and in Carroll County for such a time as this? It's not a mistake that you're here. This is not, this is not your life isn't happening until you get to the big city or until you're done with your education. Listen, you're a West Georgia student. 
Commit to your life here. God has you here for four, five, six. <laughs> tell me when to stop. Seven. Seven years. It's fullness in scriptures. <laughs> So listen, put roots down. Get involved in a church. Get involved in student organizations. Care for your college and your university. Care for your neighborhood. Care for your apartment complex. High school students, have you ever, hear the, have you ever been around a high school senior? They're unbearable to be around. And when it comes to their longing to get out from wherever they are. A high school senior, I mean, I've been a youth pastor. I mean, it was like, oh, I went out of the city. It's so awful. Listen, I'm from Florida. I grew up 15 minutes from the beach. We had rivers. We had the beach. We had great restaurants. And all. guess what? We wanted to get out too. <laughs> so if we wanted to get out of there, it, listen, it doesn't matter. Would you be present where God has you? And stop thinking about the next place all the time. Yes, God may be calling you somewhere else, somewhere else. But be present for today here. I also want you to see this in verse 5. They're to live out. Not only have I sent you here. But you're going to live out when you come here the cultural mandates. I'm going to explain what that means in just a second. Look at verse 5 and verse 6. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Now, where is that same language used? In Genesis 2. In Genesis 1. It's called the creation or the cultural mandate, which is be fruitful and multiply. What he is saying is, have children. Live your life here. Don't run around scared. You ever had this question with your, this issue with your, um, or discussion with your spouse? Should we really bring children into this world? And that is a, I mean, if you're actually taking how bad this world seriously, you're going to have that thought go through your head. It would just be better. Because this place is pretty miserable. And we live in like the best place. And it's still miserable. But what, what Jeremiah is calling us to do and what the Genesis says, listen, be fruitful, multiply, do not decrease, increase. This is the same thing God told Adam. God is telling them to be good citizens of the earth. Be fruitful and multiply and populate. Then he goes on to say, and seek. So there's a cultural mandate. I have sent you the cultural mandate, seek. Understand this, this is proactive. This is active. Assimilation and withdrawal are inactive. They are passive for the most part. It is easier. Active means you have to be intentional. You have to be conscious. And this is, you have to be, you have to think. You have to be on, do things on purpose. So when you watch movies of family, you do it on purpose. When you engage in a, in a, a sports league, you do it on purpose. When you go to school, you do it on purpose. You're not simply just passively receiving. You're active. And then finally, what does it say? Seek the welfare. Now, what does that mean? This is more than simply just, right, the, 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 tr- the Christian trope of be in the world but not of the world. That's not what he's saying. He's going far beyond that. He says, seek the welfare of the city. The word that's underneath that word welfare in the Hebrew is shalom, which is the word that literally means peace, peace. And what shalom means is not simply that we go, oh, yay, you know, there's not gang violence in Carrollton too much, so we're good. It is not simply the absence of hostility. It is the longing that everything in this city would be as God had originally designed it to be. And therefore, when you see, think about how to reach Carrollton and reach your city and the places where God has called you, you think about where is the kingdom of God not to come to bear as God would long for it to be one day. And I'm going to engage there. It means relationships. So yes, we should engage with those who have been sexually assaulted. We should engage with those who are struggling with divorce. We should engage with the orphan. We should engage with those who are impoverished. We should engage with injustice. All the places where things are not as they ought to be. That's seeking the welfare of the city. And he says to pray for it. Think about this. Think about Jeremiah and how, how unbelievable that is, right? These people have just entered their land, slaughtered them, many of them, and then drag them off to another place. And what does he say? Hey, move next to them and pray for them. We think we have it bad. And we're whimpering about, oh, the internet is so full of so much bad stuff. They were killing them. They were taking them from their homes. And yet God caused them to pray for them, not to hate them, 
seek their welfare. Practically, what does it mean? He says this, in, in their welfare, you'll find your welfare. Now, what does that mean? I think practically speaking, what it means is this, is that at the church of Jesus Christ in Carrollton, not just King's Chapel, but all the other churches here, were so influential in loving and caring for this city that people may say, we may not believe in what you believe. We may not hold to the same ethics that you hold to, but if you all were all to, to leave tomorrow, this would be an awful place. You win respect and a hearing for the gospel is what that means. Because your welfare, do they think highly and well of you because of your good deeds? You care about the things that are wrong. So this is the call, the biblical call to reach your city. Now how in the world, and this is, this is hard. This is hard because for many of us, I mean, if you're like me, I'm just hoping to get my grass mowed this week. Or in March, May when it finally starts to grow again. And blow my leaves off. And, and keep my children alive. This is hard. To think about these things intentionally and to pour ourselves out in this way. So here's what I'm going to say. I want to give you some motivation this morning as to why. Why should we care and reach the city of Carrollton? Why should we seek the welfare of Carrollton? That's the question. Three answers. The first is this. First, it's because God has a heart for Carrollton. Because God has a heart for Carrollton. Why does God call us to seek the welfare of the city? Let me give you an illustration, an example of what God's heart is for cities. You know the story of Jonah? You've been in any kind of VBS the last eight years, right? You've been, you know, you know the story of Jonah. But some of you don't, and that's okay. That's, that's cool. It's, it's kind of, we, it's about the, the whale. You're like, oh, that's the whale story. Yes, it's the whale story in Christianity. So there's Jonah. God calls Jonah to go share the gospel of repentance to the Ninevites. The Ninevites were a people who were the most brutal of the ancient world. They had slaughtered the Israelites at many times. They had, been, they had persecuted them and enslaved them at various places. They're awful. And God says, Jonah, I want you to go share the gospel with them. Call them to repentance. And Jonah says, I don't want to do that. And so he goes the other way, right? You know the story. God sends a whale to go after a storm and then a whale. And then the whale spits him up. And Jonah goes, okay, I get the point. All right, we're fast forwarding rather rapidly through this. He goes into Nineveh, and he does what God has called him to do. He says, repent, for the judgment of God is coming. And lo and behold, they do it. Now, that's usually where we end in the story. That's usually where we cut off Jonah. But what happens? What is Jonah's reaction when they repent? He storms out of the city. He gets up on a hill, and he pouts. And he says, he shakes his fist at God, and he says, God, this is why I didn't want to come here. Because I knew you would have them repent. Because you are gracious and you are merciful. And God goes, yeah, yeah. And he's, while he's up there on the hill, it's, you know, it's the desert, and so it's getting rather hot. And so God is merciful to Jonah. And so he has a vine grow up around Jonah in order to provide him shade and care. And Jonah's sitting there and actually says that Jonah, lo- he pretty much, he really loved the vine. I mean, it's usually, in the Hebrew, he uses almost ridiculous language. He like, loved the vine. It was like, you know, like you, some of you are with your dog or your cat. I mean, just love the vine. And, and then the next day, the sun comes back out, and God says he sends a worm to kill the vine. And Jonah gets really angry. He gets really angry at God. And God goes, yeah, that's the point. And here's what he says. In chapter 4, verses 8, And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. Overreact much, Jonah? And said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do, do, you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, yes, I do be well, do well to be angry. Angry enough even to die. There's, do you not see the, there's a lot of humor in Hebrew. Like, if you actually, if you're paying attention. And yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor do you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And here's the punchline. And should, I, should not I pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Here's the point. He's saying, Jonah, you love a plant. And if you are this distraught over a plant that you didn't, you didn't design and you didn't cause to grow, How much more should I, 
the creator of heavens and earth, who knit every single one of those image bearers in the womb of their mother, how much more should I care about this city? The story of Jonah is not a slam at the people of Nineveh. It's a slam at the people of Israel. Who God has been merciful to time and time again, and yet will not extend forgiveness. How much more should I? Tim Keller tells a great quote from a man, a pastor who works in the inner city, a man named Bill Crispin. Here's the quote. He says this, why should we minister in the city? He said, it's very simple. In the country, you have more plants than people. In the city, you have more people than plants. Since God loves people more than plants, he loves the city far more than the country. Some of you are really ticked off by that. Listen, the country's beautiful and there are image bearers out there, but understand there there is a pragmatism to missions. There's more image bearers here than there are in Rootful. Now, you may live in Rootful, so you reach the image bearers of Rootful, but you reach the city. Luke 19, Jesus comes to Jerusalem. What does he do? He weeps for the city. Do you weep for the city of Carrollton? Or does it never even cross your mind that there's image bearers here who are dying without Jesus? Second reason why we ought to reach Carrollton is because God sacrifices to bring you into his city. You understand this? There's this, St. Augustine wrote this book when Rome was about to fall and the church and the Christians were like losing their mind. It's called The City of God. And he, makes his, he says there's always been essentially, it's two kingdoms. When he talks about it, describes it as two cities. There's the city of man and the city of God. The city of God is God's holy kingdom. The city of man is the world. And we have been living in both these cities. And what we see, there's this pattern in the scriptures that you are naturally born, if we were to take this, this kind of imagery, you are naturally born in the city of man. In a city that deserves judgment. You know, we're all, many of the, the famous judgment passages of the Old Testament, how they're directed, where are they directed towards? Cities, right? Babel, a city. Sodom and Gomorrah, a city. Jericho, a city. Nineveh, a city. Jerusalem, a city. That the judgment of God comes down on the cities. The story of the Bible is that you belong to the city of man and that God will bring his judgment down on the city of man. It has proved itself to be an enemy of the city of God. And he will put it to death. You know, the image of Sodom and Gomorrah, that's what God will do. He'll come down in judgment. But as the God who weeps over the city, he is a God who takes action in order to save the city of man. But as the, this is what he does, and this is the gospel. What is the gospel here? Jesus leaves where? The heavenly city. To enter into the city of man. He comes into the city of Jerusalem. You know, the whole, all the gospel narratives, they have this almost this flow towards Jerusalem. That it's moving towards the day in which Jesus is going to arrive. And so he comes in to the triumphal entry. He enters into Jerusalem and he comes into the city. And what happens? They execute him. But where is he executed? Hebrews 13, verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Crucifixion happens outside the holy city. Jerusalem was the holy city, and therefore criminals could not be crucified within it. They had to be sent out. It would desecrate the city. Sinners, this is the imagery of our our relationship to God, that we are exiled and banished from the city of God. We are not allowed into the city gates. And yet the gospel is this, is that Jesus left the city of God, the city of heaven. He entered into the city of man. He was sent outside the city of Jerusalem so that you and I might come into the city of God. He dies for the people of the city. He dies to save the city. Jesus came to the city that he loved and was rejected and killed. That's what happens to him. He's actually rejected by the Father pushed away. You understand this? It's, here's where I want you to find some power here. Listen, it's not easy to be a Christian in the city. You know why? Because there's a lot of people there to disagree with you. Trees don't disagree with you a whole lot. 
In the city, there's all these human beings who are really annoying. And they have different thoughts about life than you do. And they, what do they do? They reject you. In fact, this is actually the account. Hebrews 12, 13, 12 is then followed by Hebrews 13, 13, which says this. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. The call, brothers and sisters, the reason and the motivation to go out with Jesus is that he went out to save you. And so would you follow him to go out, to be one who is given reproach, to endure reproach in the city, to endure that so that you might win some for Jesus Christ. More and more, brothers and sisters, it is difficult for us to function in the public sphere. And to be honest with you, this is one of those areas of study I'm going to get to one day. I, I don't, you, you heard my, my, my meanderings earlier. It is a tension I don't understand yet. But more and more, we're going to have to struggle with what it looks like to live in the public sphere in a place and seek the human flourishing in a city and a place that hates us. Understand this, that the cultural, mor- the, the mores, the morals that we have held to, the sexual ethics that we have held to for generation upon generation, and we have been lauded for as being respectable, now you will be looked at and be told that you are the most depraved person in society for holding that view. And so the question is, how are we going to be a people who are going to be told that we're, we're pariahs, moral pariahs? I mean, we're used to being the moral up. up right people, but we're going to be called the, the moral pariahs for our views, and yet love people. You know, you know, what's the natural response when someone really comes to you and slams you and judges you? Is it to go, I just love them? No, it's more of like, I want to kill them. And that is the heart, that, that actually is the heart, right? I hate them. How do you feel when you get on Facebook and you see people of a different political persuasion of you? And you go through, and it just, it just builds. And what happens in your heart? You are ticked off. You're angry. There is hatred that is built up there. You understand how difficult it's going to be, how difficult it's going to be to be disagreed with over and over and over again. What this is, is this is Jesus being rejected. You will be rejected like Jesus. And here's to understand this. Every other religion in the world doesn't have a, a way in, in order to deal with that. Every other religion, here's what they say. They say the problem is them. If only those people would become like us, then things would be great. And Christianity, though, it gives you the resource that even when people disagree with you, even when they don't believe as you believed, you can love them. You know why? Because that's what Jesus did for you. You were disagreeing with Jesus. You were running away. You were saying, I hate you. And I hate your authority. I hate your ethics. I hate the, your law. And you were running, and yet what did he do? He came after us to save us. That is the ethic of the Christian life. But even in a world in which we are going to be hated and disagreed with, that instead of condemning the city, we die for the city. Third, third motivation, you've got to see why you ought to reach the city is because God has a vision for cities. Do you know the city is God's invention? It wasn't like a bunch of people were like, yeah, let's, let's do something. Let's get together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, the city is God's invention. In fact, we actually see it in the arc, the narrative history of, of the scriptures. In Revelation 21 and 22, how does the world end? What happens? Are we all frolicking in a garden? We go, do we get back to Eden? Is that, people get just confused. They're like, we're just got to try to get back to Eden. No, that's not the call. The call, Revelation 21 says this, verse 2, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Heaven is going to be a city. When the world is finally as God longs for it to be, it will be a city. It will be a place. The story of the Bible is that we have gone from garden to city at the end. Because God, through man, Working to build and establish his kingdom is bringing dominion and dynasty, not just in one little garden, but across the world in which we're going to live. God's going to change the world, and it's going to be a city. I have two applications of this about this future vision, how beautiful and glorious it's going to be. And then we'll come to a close. Two applications for you this morning. Some of you are sitting here thinking, this is all really well, well and good. That's nice. Christians are supposed to love the city and care for the city and reach the city, blah, blah, blah. That's great. And what you're actually thinking is, I don't really care. My life is too difficult as it is. I would have to give up too much. I'd have to give up too much wealth, too much time, too much energy. I'm just too exhausted. 
It's just easier to withdraw and just kind of me and my family, my bubble. I'm going to call you against that. But you see, this very, these same issues that the, that the Israelites faced in Babylon are what we faced. They, they seem, they, does, does Jeremiah chapter 29 end with hopelessness? I'm just going, let's just, let's just grin and bear it until we can get out of here. No, what does he point him to? God says, if you want peace, then seek it for others and you will find it for yourself. We cannot, we have to give ourselves to this. If you're in a pit this morning and you are overwhelmed, you got to serve someone besides yourself. What we say is, I got too much. Well, it's because we're involving too much of ourselves, probably. Make a commitment to serve your city. But also notice this a little bit further in Jeremiah 29, verse 11. This is a very famous quote, isn't it? It's a refrigerator verse. What does it say? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and for your good. Now, normally, here's what people say that what they mean that is when you're in a really tough time, and, and, and they, they, you know, your friend will read that to you and go, it's all going to be great. And really what they're talking about is God's going to change your circumstances. Well, what is, that's in the midst of, right after he said that, right after verse 10. Here's what it says in verse 10. You're going to be in exile for 70 years. Which means, I mean, life expectancy is like what? 40-something at that age? You and your children are going to die here. And I know the plans I have for you. Plans for your welfare. For your good, if only my circumstances would change, then I could reach the city. No, what he's saying is this, is there is a welfare and a plan for you that is eternal and that is future. And because God gives you all things, you can lay down power now. You say, I don't have, I've got to work more, I've got to pay the bills. Listen, buy a smaller house, rent somewhere, and pay less bills. And live for the kingdom of God. Die for the city now. Plan, listen, there's a future and a hope. There's a beautiful peace that is to come. And so you can lay aside kind of earthly peace now because you are promised a beautiful peace later on, a wonderful plan. The second application is this. We got to get a hold of God's vision for the city and that will shape the way right now we reach our city. The way we reach our city. The future vision of the coming of the city of God clarifies how we as a church are to Reach our city. Understand this. We, we, are, we are a foretaste of the city of God. That's what we are. That's what the church is. Our tendency is to think of right now we're part of the earthly city, but one day Jesus is going to come back and we're going to be part of the heavenly city, and that's going to be all well and good. Understand this. It's far more complicated than that. We're actually part of both cities. Hebrews 13 verse 14 says this. We have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So that means, yay, okay, we're looking forward to the heavenly city. Follow with me here. We're almost done. Verse 12, but in Hebrews 12, verse 22, it says this, you have already come to the heavenly Jerusalem and the city of the living God. So Hebrews is saying, we're looking forward to the heavenly city and we're already a part of the heavenly city. It's already and not yet. Is the city future or has it already come? It's both. It's already come, but we have a future experience of the city that will be fuller. And this is where we get to places like Matthew 5. Matthew 5, verse 14 says this, you are a city on a hill that is present tense. That is not one day the church will be a city on a hill. We are a city on a hill right now. We are a city within a city. Understand this language. And this is Augustinian language. He says we are an alternative city to the city of man. In other words, right here in the middle of Carrollton, what God's church is, is it is an alternative city. Last week I talked about the difference between attractional church and missional church, and we've got to be both. That we cannot give the attractional church up because we are to be a city, a place in which relationships are so beautiful that the people around us and the rest of the city say, that city is beautiful. That we give people a vision of when you come into this city, just like if you come into the, in the, in the kingdom of God and the city of God one day, it will be lovely. The orphans are cared for. The tears are wiped away in this place. So as a people of God who are looking forward and being a vision to and pointing to the future city of God, how ought we behave? What should we do? I think very clearly and very quickly it is stated this way, that we should wipe away the tears of our city. What does Jesus do when he comes back? When the heavenly city comes down, what happens? Every tear will be wiped away. And so brothers and sisters, if you want to love Carrollton, if you want to be good citizens... Not only the future city, but of this city, you wipe away tears. And there is historical and theological precedent for this. 
You know, Rodney Stark, who's one of the, who wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity, he asked this question, how in the world that this tiny little religious sect that was competing against hundreds, if not thousands of other religious sects within the Roman Empire, how is it that this little sect, this little Christianity thing, took over the Roman Empire in three, 350 years? How did that happen? Well, some people say, well, oh, well, Constantine, Constantine did it. No. Some people say, well, Constantine, but listen, Constantine had to come to a place where there were so many Christians in the Roman Empire that it was politically expedient to make the Roman Empire Christian. How did we come to that place? Why did Christianity prevail in the world? It's because they showed unrivaled royalty and love for the city of man. Dionysius, who was one of the uh, historian writers, he said this. This is how the Christians behaved in the plagues. He said, heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy. Did you get to catch that? During the plagues, everyone else would leave. The Christians would stay, and they would love the people of the city, even if it meant they would get sick and they would die. For they were infect, infected by others with the disease and cheerfully accepted their pains. Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. Many of the Christians cheerfully took their neighbor's death on themselves by nursing them back to health, but in the process, took their death. Where do you think they get an idea like that? The Jesus who would come do that. So let me ask you this closing question. Do you have a vision for Carrollton that goes beyond, I wish there were some better restaurants here. It goes beyond, just glad it's there and I'll stay away from it. Could you, could you envision the kingdom of God coming down in Carrollton and then pursue that end, that vision? Martin Luther King said this, I've been to the mountaintop. What's he saying? He then goes to give a vision. Listen, we will not get there in this life. But we have a vision of what things will be like. And we live towards that vision. The vision of the future city of God. Would you embrace that vision? And give your life to it for the glory of God. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. And we love that you are the one who came to the outcasts. Those who are tossed outside of the city of God. To bring us into your city. To make us one with you again. To make us citizens of your nation. Of your your city. Of your heaven. Oh gracious heavenly father. I pray that we would be that kind of church. As Ben prayed earlier, that we would pray kingdom prayers. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Make it so, Lord, and use us to that end. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.